This episode is the second half of our conversation with Sandy Schreier. If you missed the first half, you might want to give it a listen first. Sandy's career is beyond impressive. In addition to her conservation work, she has designed accessories for Yves Saint Laurent, created costumes for the Supremes, taught courses on haute couture and collecting, and written books about Hollywood's costume history. Between November 2019 and July of 2020, the Metropolitan Museum held an exhibition called Pursuit of Fashion, made up of 80 promised gifts to the museum, apparel and accessories from the Sandy Schreier collection. It was curated by Andrew Bolton, who asked Sandy what she wanted visitors to come away with. Sandy's response? She wanted them to feel joy and wonder and to witness the exceptional qualities of these objects and of the collection itself. The Sandy Schreier collection is made up of more than 15,000 pieces of historic fashion and high-end haute couture, some of the biggest brands and best names in the history of fashion and apparel. It is the largest and finest private collection in the world. In addition to her show at the Met, pieces from the Sandy Schreier collection put in exhibitions at museums like the Louvre, Museum of Fine Arts Houston, and the Art Institute of Chicago. Now, it's time to dive back into our conversation. I love that. It's so neat that there's all of these behind the scenes connections between all of these people who want to preserve history and protect beauty and make sure it's not going to estate sale someday that it gets to the place where it's going to be protected. So I've read a bunch of articles where you talk about the relationship between fine art and haute couture and how you don't see a difference between Picasso and Calasaurus. And I love that the Calasaurus dress is my favorite, that yellow column. Oh, astonishingly beautiful. It just makes me wonder, do you see a big difference between like a private collection and what a museum has? Is there something like fundamental that you see as separating those two types of entities? I don't know where I got the idea, Rachel, that fashion is art. But I start thinking that way at a very young age. And as I said, I thought with my parents that these clothes should not be worn and they shouldn't be touched. They shouldn't be cut apart, etc. I have a million stories, very sad stories about things that happened to dresses that were cut apart and made into you know what an antimagasker is? It's that lace thing that old ladies put on the back of chairs. So <laughs> their husband's head that contained, if their husband would use hair products on his hair, it wouldn't get on the furniture. And I missed a collection of Pacan because somebody bought it at auction, all these Pacan couture pieces, and they made antimagaskers. For, for chairs. Oh. Yeah. Out of it? Uh-huh. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Did you cry? I feel like <laughs> I still have nightmares about it. It's, it's a real ugly story. But I got this idea, and my husband, after law school, he always knew he wanted to be a trial lawyer. And as he went around the country taking depositions and trying cases, and we were in our 20s, I started calling museums. And I'd ask for the director, and I'd find out if they collected costume. And then I would make an appointment to see the director. And if there were some directors that wouldn't see me, that passed me down to a curator. But I did see somebody at every museum that we went to, meaning he was taking a deposition. And instead of me sightseeing in that city, 
I was sitting in a museum talking to a director, telling him why fashion is art. And that's a whole other story that I can talk to you about for hours. And and why indeed, if the United States Congress declared fashion an art form, which they did, along with photography and sculpture and ceramics, why then isn't couture an art form? And I obviously, this was before Mrs. Freeland came to the Costume Institute. And of course, I think that I'm the leader in the field. But in fact, she's the one that made it famous because she gave it the cachet that it needed. Who was I? I was a housewife from Southfield, Michigan. And she, in fact, was Diana Breland. So she put it on the map, but I planted the seed. And that's what I like to think. Or I planted the sequence, not the seed. <laughs> like that planted the sequence. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. It's great. Yeah, it's say something like that to a kid's book author, because now I'm like magic sequins, growing <laughs> grow dresses. I think that's it. I think you got you're onto something with that, Sandy. <laughs> So that's how it all began. And I don't even remember what your question was. No, you know, I was just... As far as fashion is an art form, I always felt that way. And you were talking about collectors. Um, yeah, I was- when I did speaking engagements, which I've been doing for at least 40 years, and I go across the country whenever I do speaking engagements, and they're usually now at very big venues, but I started out small there would be like 40 or 50 people there, if that. And then they got to be very, very big and for all kinds of organizations. And I've spoken to the American Medical Association. Everybody loves fashion. So nowadays it's really great. But and I and whatever city I was in, people would come up to me afterward and say, do you know Mary Smith? She lives here in town and she has the biggest and best collection in the whole world. And I would always plan on being in that city for an extra day just to go visit the so-called collectors, quote unquote. And I learned after many years of doing that, that people are very passionate about their collections, but it's not very many people that collect fashion that turns into an art form, that have the eye or the expertise. But I think it's mostly the eye because so many of the big collectors who have a great deal of money, wealthy people, tend to hire people to advise them on a collection. They personally, many of them, develop a passion as the years go by but I'd say at least 50% of them don't. It's more mm-hmm. of a, you would know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a word. I don't want to put these people down because I think it's wonderful for people to collect art that can afford it and, and to pay somebody to give them good suggestions and good information about what is considered good art. But I think that so many people who are in a a different world, like in middle America, who are collecting salt and pepper shakers. And I met a lot of those people. And when I was a little girl, I was one of those people. And I still have some of mine. (laughs) And but people are, it's really, it's amazing. And I 
never, ever, ever talk down to these people because I don't know. People often ask me where I learned about at the age of three and 13 and 23. I didn't know anything and there were no books about this. And I can't tell you where it came from. I mean, we can say it's in my DNA, but my dad, in all reality, never really cared about fashion. And he started having huge arguments with me about fashion in the 1960s, because that's when furs became fashionable instead of functional. And my dad was a craftsperson. Everybody that I met years and years ago who worked with my dad said he had magic fingers. He could cut great skins. But women by the 1950s or the early 60s, there was a fur magazine and they started to say, fill glass for Vogel Mm -hmm. furs or so-and-so and have a designer name. My dad would get very angry at that. and He would say, what does Bill Blass or Oscar de la Renta know anything about how to cut a skin? Mm-hmm. Well, of course they didn't, and I would try and explain that to my father. But as I said, I think that my passion, I was in the right place at the right time. As a little girl, I was taken to Russick's from the age of two and a half until five, five days a week. I don't think that every little girl who would have that opportunity would develop a collection like mine, but I think that that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. And that somehow, maybe centuries back, I had a great-great-grandmother or something who loved to sew that I never met. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I've talked to so many designers who had a relative centuries back who they heard was the dressmaker of the town or the village. And that might have been the case, but I just don't know about it. But I don't think, as I said, my mother was very beautiful. And when my father brought her clothes from Russick's, she looked like she stepped out of Vogue magazine, but she didn't care about them one iota. She cared about what her bowling score was (laughs) and and what her she played tennis. She did all the sports. And so I don't know where it came from. I don't know why. In fact, when Mrs. Dodge sent over three boxes of dresses and had her chauffeur deliver it to our house, and I looked inside the boxes and I would say to my parents, well, I like this one, but I don't like that and that and daddy, take it back and send it back to Mrs. Dodge. And my dad dad would say, you can't do that. This was a gift, and you have to say thank you, and you just keep it. And that's exactly what I did. But even at the age, mind you, I mean, I've heard all these stories from my parents and from the people who are now dead and gone who work with my dad at Russick about how I could walk into a department and I could walk into, let's say, the millinery shop at Russick and see all these hats and walk over to the best one. And there could be 20 on display and I'd walk over to the best one and say, I want that one. And so I guess we can say it's in my DNA. It's something that I was born with. And a lot of people just are collecting because it makes them happy. 
And I'm happy that that makes them happy. But it's a little frustrating when I go to some cities and I go to see a collection that I hear is the greatest of all time. But in fact, it's really pretty, I don't want to say anything badly about it. But well, there's it, different motivations. There's different things that people get out of various activities. And I don't think that... Yeah, it, it made the collector very happy to collect it. But in fact, I think that that the reason it's not at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and my collection is that word art. That what I collected is art and turned out to be art. And I can't give you any other reason why other than it's something within me that I was born with. You just recognize it. And so for all of you students out there, and for you, Rachel, and you, Jonathan, you can go to school and you can read a lot of books, but that doesn't make, what should I say, that doesn't make the best collector. No, absolutely. I, I think what you're speaking to is the power of the an organic eye, of having that je ne sais quoi for the aesthetic and for, for the visual impact of a garment and a collection writ large, which takes time and is, in my personal view, I think something you're either born with or not, and also something that is either nurtured when you're young or not. That's a big part of why I started Little Red Fashion, because I think there are a lot of kids who do have natural predilections for having an eye, but maybe they're in a place where they're not exposed to as many things to get that visual cortex fired up. Maybe they're in a family that does not understand their love of fashion or doesn't have the means to support their love of fashion. Mm-hmm. And so creating stories and telling stories through clothes to inspire and facilitate that for all kids is, is why we're here. That's why I resonate so deeply with so much of what you said, both here and in, and in your interview, Sandy, in terms of preservation as a means to allowing what you were so lucky to experience to be carried forward into future generations. Because I think that is at the core of what makes your legacy so important and so impactful. And what touches me about it, both as an educator yeah. and a fashioner, because it's- I have to ask the two of you. Sure. The question I'm asked the most by young people is, I would like to start a collection of fashion. How do you think I should begin? I get that all the time. And I really, I don't know what the answer is because at the age of two and a half, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know. I didn't know what a collector was. I wasn't starting a collection. This was really a hobby. It was a play toy. It was fun. And it turned out, I think talking to you, something just occurred to me. The common denominator in all the press articles about me is the word fantasy. And they all say that I have led a fantasy life. Hmm. And if I have, it's because, not because my parents played into that and even gave me permission to do that. They were really quite upset as this collection grew, they were upset that we were all going to die of germs. They said that all these clothes contained germs 
and we mm. were going to die of old Crohn's disease. Oh no! And, and, um, <laughs> and they were very angry about it. But my husband, who, as I said, was my boyfriend from the time we were thirteen until we got married, which was when we were nineteen, and he had no interest in fashion whatsoever, although he did look like, and everyone keeps saying, the most fashionable lawyer who ever lived was Sherwin Schreier. But he came by it naturally. He just happened to be very handsome and have the perfect physique and look really great in clothes. And he didn't try. It just happened. And everyone used to say to me, what's your favorite piece of your collection? And my answer was always my husband, as he looked better than anything else in my collection. He really did. But I think that my life, as I look back now, as I said to you, I'm going to L.A. and I'm seeing all these people. And I think of myself as being Michigan, a suburban Detroit housewife who raised four children. I'm still in the same house where I raised them. And I now have seven grandchildren as well, who are grown grandchildren. And by the way, none of my children or grandchildren are the least bit interested in my collection. (laughs) None. Zero zip. And so, but I think that my husband, as I said, played into this fantasy and everyone said, well, why did he, if he didn't, wasn't really interested? And the only answer I could come up with is one, that he loved me and he wanted me to be happy. That's the and perfect. if this made me happy, then it made him happy. That's so perfect. That's about- Beautiful. So That's is there any, are there uh, any questions? That, yes, that I, I definitely have a question. Given the extensive nature of your collection, I'd be interested to know what ranks as one of the more challenging pieces to maintain or any of the challenges in terms of the just the maintenance of the collection that you've had. Because I think there's a lot of people listening, especially younger kids who may want to one day be a curator or one day conservator, who might be interested to hear what some of the challenges look like on maintaining a collection of your scale. I think that this collection is, and I would be very honest with students today, I think that collecting costume has to be the most difficult collection to maintain. Absolutely. And the most, the most challenging, the most difficult, and probably the most expensive. As the numbers grow and you have to have, I was very fortunate many, many years ago, I became friendly after writing 10 million letters and driving the director of the Detroit Institute of Arts crazy with the amount of mail he was getting from me. (laughs) He turned over all that mail to Mary Ballard, who is now one of the conservators at the Smithsonian, but she was then at the Detroit Institute of Arts. And she took me in hand and taught me about acid-free boxes and acid-free tissue and I knew enough not to hang these things on hangers. I never did that, ever. But in order to keep these things that are museum pieces in a museum situation, there has to be, you're talking about a big expense. And I was very fortunate that my husband, my childhood boyfriend, 
became a very successful lawyer and not only was proud of what I was doing, but he was willing to support my habit. And that meant that buying acid-free boxes, which cost a zillion dollars, and acid-free tissue, and being able to pay art storage bills that were astronomical in order to keep these things because people know that if you have thousands of pieces of couture gowns, they can't possibly be in your home unless you owned a castle. And I absolutely, and you're watching me live now, you know I'm not living in a castle. And then when you discover, which I did early on, that these things were valuable, because as a little girl, I had no idea what the value was. And as the value increased because of vintage clothing stores, because of auctions, because of museums showing exhibitions, and all of this, and because of these articles like Eight Pages in People magazine about Sandy Schreier and her collection, that increased the value. And therefore, there has to be insurance to cover that. And all of this is something that had I have been married to somebody else who couldn't afford it, or if I didn't, if I wasn't a stay-at-home mom, I mean, I basically was a stay-at-home mom who was doing things on the side, like modeling for Fidel Sassoon, mm-hmm. making the Supremes costumes and the Motown costumes, and doing that kind of thing, which doesn't sound like a stay-at-home mom to you, but 90% of my life was raising these four children. And I wasn't interested in playing cards or lunching with the ladies or going shopping. I was always either designing, which I was doing at the beginning, and or doing speaking engagements, as I said, and then all kinds of jobs that were helping support my habit, because this is a habit. And it's very habit-forming, especially if you're passionate about what you do. And there's another reason that this is the most difficult collection. When you own a painting or a sculpture or a piece of ceramic, you have it on display in your home and you can look at it and you can admire it every day. And that gives you a thrill. Besides the couture, I do collect art and antiques and My home is really beautiful. And and when I get up every morning, I have all this eye candy that makes me feel very happy just to look at it. I feel like I'm living in a museum surroundings. And every museum director who has been here has said this is like being in a museum. But what's not on display is the fashion, the couture, because You just have to protect it from the elements. You have to protect it from harsh lighting, from either being too humid or too the temperature is too warm and that can ruin your textile. So all of these things are things that I didn't know about as a little girl when the collection began. Had I have known about it, the collection wouldn't exist today. That's older and wants to go into collecting and start and has the finances to start at the top, has to know that it's going to be very difficult to maintain 
this collection. And what bothers me a lot, or used to bother me more, was people such as socialized stylists and movie stars, celebrities buying beautiful couture that belongs in a museum, vintage couture, and wearing it to a party. And they're buying it for a one-time experience. And they're around people who are smoking, I hope not, drinking and food and dirty fingers, et cetera. And certainly those pieces will not exist or will wind up. And you asked me a few minutes ago about maintaining or what problems I've ever had with the conservation of these objects. And I think that the conservation team, which is extraordinary at the Met, led by Glenn Peterson, who is fantastic, will tell you that my pieces are pristine and near pristine. And I once turned down a whole collection as a, as a teenager. I turned down a collection of Scaparelli and some of the major designers from the 30s that today would really be worth a great deal of money. And any museum would die to have them. I turned them down because either a button was missing or a sequin was missing or there was a small mm. spot. And little did I know as a young person and not having any of the books or any of the learning that you two have had and young people have today, I had no idea except thinking to myself, this is a really unusual Scaparelli button. And it's so unique and it's missing and it had five buttons, but now there's only four. I'll never be able to find that fifth button. So goodbye. I don't want that dress mm. or that suit. And I turned it down and I think about that all the time too. The one that got away. I can only tell you that the first time that Richard Martin and Harold Coda, who are both former heads of the Costume Institute, and the first time a long, long time ago that they came to my house, they brought with them many of their publications and they autographed them for me before they left. Mm -hmm. And all they kept saying over and over again, and they said it in their inscriptions in the books that they wrote, they said, did you stay up all night making these pieces to copy the great masters? Because they couldn't believe what great condition they were in. And that's because I rescued them. And when you introduced me, I think, I don't remember, Rachel, if you introduced me or if Jonathan or both of you, but one of you called me the savior. And that's what I think I am. I think I have become the savior of fashion. I know that there's untold pieces that would not be available for the public to see that would not have been in exhibitions that would not have traveled the world without you. I mean, that's quite the legacy. That's absolutely savior-like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of with the work that we're doing at Little Red Fashion, I'm constantly obsessing over how we move the field and art of fashion forward for the next generation in ways that relate to them. And without the foundational work that people like you have done, that would be impossible. Now for me, I think of the future of how we share fashion, especially with meeting 
younger kids where they're at with technology, I think of things like augmented reality and digitization and digitizing archives and things like that. And I think the future of fashion lies not only in hearkening back to more traditional archives and exhibitions, but also in finding new ways through technology to share the deeper stories. Because one of the things that really stuck out that you said earlier was how disappointed you were that when on display, for example, at the Met for your exhibition, so much context was missing. So many stories behind the garments were missing. And that's where my fashion nucleus lives, is in those stories. That's part of what I love doing with Little Red Fashion, is the stories that fashion tells us about people, about places, about times in history. Your collection, I'm curious as the Sandy Schreier, what you think of the future of exhibition and showing through technology. How do you feel about things like, for example, 3D scanning garments to create them in a digital space so that they can be shown without having to be removed from their acid-free boxes and acid-free paper and, and put under lighting? I think that all of this, meaning the digital age, if you would have told me back in the 50s or in the 40s or in, even in the 60s, whatever, that we would be sitting and talking to each other while looking at each other live right now. Or I have a nightmare every night, and that nightmare is losing my cell phone. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times, actually, last week I have been I, I have to knock wood. I'm looking for some wood here to knock. I have actually lost my phone and found it about five times now over the last years. And once was about last week. I was in an office waiting room and I left my phone sitting on a table. And the waiting room had at least six or eight people in it and people walking in and out. And then I went into a meeting. I was in the meeting about an hour and a half. And so I had no reason in a live meeting to look at my phone. And it wasn't until I went to leave that I realized that I didn't have my phone. Mm. And I didn't remember where my phone was. And I went running out into the waiting room and there were a zillion people in every chair. And there was my phone sitting on the table. Nobody had touched it. And it was still oh. there. Goodness. And so, I mean... The age of digitizing everything, I think, is really wonderful because not everybody can get to the Met. Not everybody can get to the De Young or LACMA or any of the museums to see the Brooklyn Museum and their great costume exhibition and see these things in person. There are a lot of fashion books now, which... In 1986, when I assisted, and I'm thrilled to say that I assisted very, very, very slightly, but Caroline Milbank on the book Couture, The Great Designers, and that was the first of its kind. It's still the Bible of Couture. It's so incredible and such a great book. And her book, New York Fashion, also, to me, is my Bible. And now, as you know, Rachel, and I don't know if you followed me then too, Jonathan, but starting in January of 21, I start posting the history of the American fashion designers. And 
I posted them in alphabetical order and did that for 18 months straight. And I think I posted about three times a week. And so that was really thrilling to me because the world doesn't know 95% of those names. And that is really, that's my new goal. That's I love what that. I'm, that's what I'm doing now. I want to get the word out. I want people to realize that, no, we're not the French couture and we're not British fashion, but what we have to offer is so great. And I think that historically and artistically, it will be recognized in the future. And my final words to you are, I hope that I'm around to see this hard work that I'm putting into American fashion come to being. I hope that, and I'm working on exhibitions of American fashion that I hope we will all get to see within the next year to three years. And, and I hope that all of these designers, American designers, both living and dead, will see the recognition that they so deserve. I love that. I love Me that. Too. So oh, somewhere yeah. Eleanor Lambert is smiling. Yeah, absolutely. So- <laughs> One last question. We always like to ask for a book recommendation. I know we just talked about Milbank, but are there any books that you would say are really good tools or helpers or ones you just love to see on your shelf? I've been very, very fortunate. I have, I collected all the out of print books the ones like Lily Dashay's books and Edith Head and all the early designers. And I've got all their memoirs, which is fun. And But all the fashion books that have come out are so great. I really, I, I really think that my go-to books really are the two that I mentioned, both Caroline's books of couture and New York fashion. I go to, I go to them constantly. There are so many that have come out, but I can't think of any others. There are so many great ones about different designers, like the McArdle books, I think are wonderful. Oh, another book that I think is incredible. And I think there are some on the internet of used books and it's called American Fashion. Ho, ho, ho. And it's by Bob Riley and who was Robert Riley was the head of FIT, and uh, there's, I believe, five chapters, and one on Norman Norell, one on Mabouche, Boucher, one on Claire McCardle, Pauline Trigere, and who am I missing? Maybe Charles James, but I can't, not sure exactly, but that's another really good, important, important book. And then I think all the other books that designers have done like the books about Charles James are really wonderful. And the books about Claire McCardle are really good. There's some really good ones out there. I'm trying to think of any other designer books that there's so many of these things that I unearthed about the early designers that I think are great. And there's no books about them. And I know that if museums like the Cooper Hewitt and the Smithsonian, and the Brooklyn, and of course the Met, number one, and the De Young, and all the, with their costume exhibits, which we didn't get into, but doing a costume exhibit also, not only is collecting very difficult, 
but doing a costume exhibition takes years in the planning. My husband and I, I believe, signed an agreement with the Met in the year 2012, and the exhibition didn't open until late 19. And this is, it's very, very difficult, very expensive, and very time-consuming to do a costume exhibition. And for me, I'm looking back at the young Sandy who went around saying to all the directors, oh, please exhibit costume. I had no idea what went into the making of a costume exhibition. I know we said that the book question was going to be our last, but since you brought it up, I have to ask, what what surprised you the most about that process when you were in it that you hadn't anticipated when you were well, doing that? I can only tell you one thing. No, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> all good. Okay. I want to keep it a mystery. I'm not going to tell you all I can say to you is. That's fine. Doing a costume exhibition that turns out to look like a fantasy that thousands of people come to see and they love, adore, and enjoy and talk about takes so much work and so much and blood, sweat, and tears and blood, sweat, and tears and blood, sweat, and tears and lots of angst and aggravation and behind-the-scenes trauma. But in the end, the fantasy is worth the reality. I love that. Fantasy Amazing. is worth the reality. I mean, I think that puts a fine point on fashion writ large, too. You know, it really fantasy, it's a tough business, whatever part of it you're in, whether it's manufacturing, production, design, consulting, and collecting, as we've learned here today. I know you, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you've seen so many of those parts we briefly touched on, whether it was accessory design from Saint or Monolith. Elsa soon, and I, I'm so grateful that you were able to share your time with us, Sandy, and I'm so appreciative. And I know I speak on behalf of our listeners and our supporters and our fellow Little Red Villagers, but this has been a treat. It's been so wonderful to talk so to you lovely. and learn some more of your stories that you were so kind enough to share with us here at Little Red Village. Thank well, you. I'm so glad to meet the two of you, and thank you so much for asking me. It really has been an exciting morning. Thank you so much fun. Thank Thank you so much, Sandy. And thank you to our amazing listeners here at Little Red Village. Thank you for joining us for this installment and check us out next go around for our next guest because Sandy is going to be a tough act to follow. She was just so wonderful. Wasn't that a great interview with the savior of fashion? Let's jump into some of the footnotes exploring the intersection of fashion and history thanks to Sandy Schreier. First up, Pekin. The House of Pekin was at one time the largest atelier in Paris, employing over 2,000 workers. It also invented the idea of PR in a way by having models dressed in the latest fashions appear at horse races and other public events to drum up business. Its clients included the height of European royalty and American industrialists, just like the Detroit family Sandy Schreier knew growing up who kickstarted her collective habit. Next up, we have the Supremes. Iconic girl group, the Supremes, defined an era and their vivacious matching costumes were a huge part of that. Well, I can't say the singers headed by diva Diana Ross, and originally called the Primet, invented glamour. They certainly perfected it while showcasing the Motown look, which founding member Mary Wilson remembered once as saying, We were role models. What we wore mattered. 
We were so in demand, we needed an endless supply of great high fashion. Stores would stay open late just for us so that we could shop privately. And last up, speaking of Detroit and Motown, it is worth noting that the Motor City plays a huge role in both the history of American fashion and Sandy Schreier's collection and upbringing. As the seat of American car royalty like the Fords, Dodges, and others, this Midwestern hub in its heyday was absolutely dripping in fashion. That's all for today's footnotes. Make sure to head to our website for the articles on these footnotes and the worksheets that accompany Sandy Schreier's episodes of The Little Red Village. Remember, fashion is for everyone.